You are listening to the Forcecom Frontline, bringing you to our soldiers on the front lines of readiness. Welcome to the Forcecom Frontline. I'm Dean and I'll be your host today. June has a lot of history for the armed forces to include D-Day, Forcecom's 50th anniversary, and the Army's birthday. We thought we'd share some history for everyone out there that might not know the significance in all three of these events. So we brought in the Forcecom historian, Jeffrey Miller, to bring a voice to the history books. That's Jeff right there. How you doing, Jeff? Hello. <laughs> so thanks for joining us, Jeff. As we said, before we launch into the past, uh, can you tell us what the role of a command historian is? To be brief, the, the role of the command historian is to capture the history of the command. Uh, we, we maintain the historical records of the command, and we, uh, we make sure all our downtrace units also are turning in history reports and trying to capture their history as well. We ensure that uh, the force comp commanders do an exit in- interview at the end of their tour so we get their command perspective. And the, the headquarters staff itself annually you know, submits historical reports to the office that we compile to capture our history. So that sounds pretty important. I mean, uh, off topic. Uh, I mean, what's the importance of turning in this stuff every year then? I mean, for people that might not understand, you, 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 you're able to go back of all these wars and look at stuff. Well, basically, if, if the units are not being proactive, if the army is not proactive in capturing its own history, then that history will be lost because no one's going to do it for them. So across the army, you know, uh, major efforts are put in place to make sure in this digital age, we, we capture and maintain our records. The Center of Military History, you know, has a large digital files record, uh, and uh, we've uh, we we support their efforts as well in, in capturing the history. We we maintain the you know, Army's only two active component military history detachments, and we send them out. They're both deployed right now. Uh, the Forty Fourth History Detachment is in Wiesbaden, Germany, uh, supporting. Uh, the support group in Ukraine for Ukraine, uh, the Seventh History Detachments in Qatar supporting CENTCOM. So uh, we, we maintain a constant rotation forward to capture the Army's history. So it's interesting you say that. It's almost like we set this up. I'm kidding. I was in Wiesbaden a couple of years ago for Defender 21, uh, still currently in the reserves, and I was also in a military history detachment. I think it was the 45th in Aiken, South Carolina, a few years ago. Yeah, most of the history detachments are in the reserve or national guard uh, c- components, uh, and uh, they they train regularly, and we try and integrate them uh, with our our active component corps and their warfighter exercises prior to their deployments as well. Cool. Are you ready to get going here? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So, who took place during D-Day from a force comm unit perspective, and what was the significance? During World War II, Force Com, or its equivalent, was known as Army Ground Forces. So Army Ground Forces, they had the same patch, but they had a much broader mission than Force Com has today. Essentially, they also were responsible for uh, training and doctrine and the equipping of the force. Uh, General Leslie McNair was its commander for, for most of this period. So decisions had to be made for force structure, and, and sustainment and all these key decisions years ahead of time. So before D-Day, major decisions were being made 
in the, in the, you know, by around 1940, 41, to, on how that army would look like and, and how it would be prepare and train for this major operation. So one of the things the army did is the army began major conscription early before entering the war. So we, had, we were building up the size of the army and we organized major field exercises you know, large-scale training exercises in the continental United States. And so I would recommend for our interested readers The Rise of the GI Army by Paul Dixon, which is a great description of these early years of the Army's training. And it, this, this was important because it trained the staff officers in particular. They, they actually got hands-on experience moving trucks and logistics. And so the staff officers were well prepared to conduct operational maneuvers when, when the war came. Now, at, at the time, you know, the Army was, was looking at what happened in Europe in 1940 and the fall of France. And... You know, prior to the fall of France, the the army's uh, strategic assumptions were that the French army would be the shield of the West and they could carry the heavy load of any aggression from Nazi Germany. So when it fell, when France fell, it caused a major reassessment uh, and almost panic in in strategic circles in Washington. You know, this book by uh, Michael Nieberg, When France Fell, you know, captures this period uh, very well. And for example, and it influenced our force structure decisions. For example, watching the French army panic under German dive bomber Stuka attacks led to a, a massive emphasis on air, anti-aircraft defenses and motorized anti-aircraft defenses and led to some strategic decisions. You know, we didn't anticipate that we would gain air superiority by D-Day over the Luftwaffe. And so, therefore, these units were, in, in some ways, superfluous to, to the ongoing operations. So, mis- some mistakes were made. Uh, the, the Army, during its training and preparation, you know, had an inadequate uh, air, to gra- air support doctrine. But during the war, we trained uh, and adopted the British doctrine. Uh, from our allies, and that was that was a much more effective. They had they had honed their doctrine in the Desert War years prior to D-Day, and when we entered the landed in North Africa in late 1942, we quickly learned uh, the benefits of their doctrine. However, we did we did take a, we had a superior artillery doctrine. Artillery, you know, with our you know we were able to equip a large amount of our force with radios, and so our time on target artillery tactics would prove devastating against the Germans in Normandy, and so uh, you know the strategic decision was also made to limit and cap the size of the army to 90 divisions, and so uh, you know we were going to get maximum bang for the buck for our force. Right. So one of the one of the and so. When, we, when you start getting into the, the gritty, boring details of force structure, I would recommend this book, Clash of Arms, How the Allies Won in Normandy by Russell Hart. That has a great chapter on army force structure and decisions. And one of the decisions they made was a pooling structure, like that the, at the core level. So we would, you would have anti-aircraft battalions, engineer battalions, and the like, and you could you could uh, assign them to divisions as the tactical and operational situation 
dictates. Now, this was an assumption in, in practical reality. Once the war was ongoing, we quickly learned that units tended to stay with the divisions where they were assigned. It took time to train, for example, an anti-tank gun battalion and integrate it with, with, its, with its fellow infantry and armor battalions and likewise. So they tended to keep them with the units where, so this yeah. was an example of where the assumption <laughs> met tactical reality and, and had to adjust under okay. fire. So what was the importance of the Normandy landings then, June 6, 1944? So essentially, if, if we hadn't landed in Europe, you know, Europe to this day would have been dominated by either the Third Reich or Soviet Russia. By, by coming into Europe, you know, we were able to liberate Europe and, uh, and, and tie it into a long-term strategic you know, plan for, for economic reconstruction and political re rebirth and renewal. So the Normandy invasion got, the, got the number of forces necessary into Europe. You know, we, we, were, we, were, we were currently fighting in Italy but Italy had certain logistical and geographical constraints in terms of the terrain. So it was very difficult to break out into, into Central Europe from Italy, although we were attempting that. You know, we had limited shipping and logistics uh, availability. And so Normandy was the ideal, was decided, you know, was the ideal location in terms of risk versus reward. So, you know, like, like the army today, you see the think tanks doing, practicing Taiwan invasion scenarios, and you read about this in the Rand Corporation simulating this. When you, when you go through simulations of the Normandy landings, and here's an example of a recent uh, commercial simulation, the Dark Summer Normandy by GMT Games, you, you find that the Allies invariably succeed in the landing and, and are able to make a foothold in Normandy. In fact, the German commander, Aaron Rommel, in his, in his planning for the defense, advocated putting the German armor forces, the panzer forces, right up in the beachhead. And he felt only if we deploy them all at the beach, at the beach line itself do we have a chance of resisting the, the Allied and knocking them off the beaches. But instead, the, the strategy, the strategic decision was made to keep the German armored reserves further back in reserve. And so by the time they were deployed forward to Normandy, the Allies had a, had, had a preponderance of forces landed. And so then it became an, a, a war of attrition. And here the Allies had an advantage so I would recommend uh, this, this, this illustrated book on the Mortain counterattack in 1944 by Stephen Zaloga. This, this illustrates the disadvantages the Germans had fighting in the open in the face of Allied artillery and air power. And so the German army was just a smashed wreckage by the end of the summer after a long, long battle of attrition. And... And so then the Allies were faced with uh, the operational task of going across Europe and, and to Europe. And here again, you can see some of the decisions made by Army ground forces, you know, affected in that the Army did not have enough truck companies assigned to support 
a major operational advance across France. And so this limited the offensive. And a good book that covers all the logistics of this advance is the Battle of Western Europe, Battle for Western Europe, Fall 1944, an operational assessment by John A. Adams. And this book goes into depth the logistical hurdles that the, the, the U.S. Army faced and the strategic decisions that resulted. And this affected German strategic decisions as well as they realized the, they had a moment in time where they could counterattack and delay the Allies far enough and maybe buy time for them to fight face off against the Russian army in the east, which was grinding away at them. And so, you know, this this lack of logistics preparation and support opened a window for a German strategic counterattack in, in the winter of 44. And this is a great book by British historian Anthony Tucker Jones that was just published called Hitler's Winter that lays out the German strategies of, of trying to it, basically the logistics basis of trying to recapture the ports, you know, the major logistics ports. So, so in other words, the Allies had so few truck companies to support their advance, they were relying on the ports closer to Germany, such as Antwerp. Which were, were, and so th that reduced the amount of time, you know, the space for the truck companies yeah. to support it. So the Germans planned an operational thrust to take the port, and that would have slowed down the Allied logistics train. Because you got to remember, France was totally destroyed, you know, the rail lines and everything else. Now, the Allies, the amazing uh, economic capacity, we were building pipe fuel pipelines across France, and we were building rail lines. But all this would come into play later and by the spring. So by the spring of 1945, after the Germans had expended themselves in the counterattack, you could see once the logistics hurdles were overcome, the full operational capacity of the U.S. Army. And this is where this training and staff work going back to 1940 and 41 came into play. And this book... Uh, on Patton's crossing of the Rhine, Nierstein and Oppenheim, 1945, by Russ Rogers. Russ Rogers is a former force comm historian, and he wrote this in his retirement, and it captures the, the amazing operational capacity of the U.S. Army by the in the late stages of the war, where the Germans were simply unable to counter the, the initiative and the, that the, this advanced logistics and capacity and okay. staff work gave them. Yeah, so you mentioned about the training. So what kind of training was being done back then to prepare units for a war? Well, the units, you know, most of our bases and facilities that you see today were, were constructed either during World War One in the preparations or in the preparations for, for World War Two. So there was a vast logistics network. Uh, the entire economy was, was shifted and industrial capacity was shifted to, to support this endeavor. And in fact, you know, by the end of the war, you know, forces were being already demobilized you know, the, the, the infantry, the, the veteran units that had led the assault into Germany were being demobilized and, and being sent back and being replaced by fresh divisions. And the focus was already shifting to Japan and, and making sure enough troops were available for the, the pending invasion of the Japanese islands. I would also recommend this book, uh, War and Peace, 
Uh, it's a part of a trilogy by Nigel Hamilton that kind of dictates uh, the overall leadership of Franklin Roosevelt and FDR uh, toward this endeavor. You know, his leadership and vision of, of, of how the post-war world should look and shape shaped, you know, down to the level of what the Army's decisions were and what they were deciding in terms of, you know, where the Army would go how they, which, 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 you know, it was FDR's decision to invade Normandy when and where, you know, you know, what's, you know, the General Marshall, uh, Secretary of War Stimson, these, these, these officers and, and leaders advocated an early invasion of Europe in 1942, 43. Yeah. And in retrospect, this would have been very problematic and, and dangerous. And so, uh, in a way, FDR's instinct uh, proved superior to his his military advice uh, in this case. Nice. <laughs> I think we already talked about it, but why was Normandy so important in history? Well, Normandy Normandy opened up, uh, you know, uh, you know, allowed us to to recapture and penetrate into Germany and basically seize. But at the at the war's end, both sides largely frozen place by both sides i mean the, the the russian armies coming from the east and the allied armies coming from the west and the south and so by by physically getting into germany you, you're basically securing that area for the west and then it opened the door for political you know the political potsdam conferences uh you know post-war to kind of work out and delineate uh the the post-war management of Germany as a prostrate nation and how it was going to be rebuilt. And in fact, our building, you know, the Forcecom headquarters is named after George Marshall, who was instrumental in implementing, you know, a post-war plan for reconstruction in Europe known as the Marshall Plan. Nice. <laughs> All right. Thinking here. Okay. So I'm going to touch on the anniversary now. Just yeah, that's fine. So what is the significance of the 50th anniversary of Forcecom and what was it like during its inception? So its inception, Forcecom's birthday is officially 1 July 1973. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, prior to, to its birth, Forcecom was, 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 was considered Continental Army Command. So it, had, it was a huge edifice and it had responsibility for doctrine training operations and in 1973 it was broken up and still by so that's where you had training and doctrine command and u.s army forces command split up now the army was in ruins at this point in time so i would recommend uh this book america's army Making the All Volunteer Force by Beth Bailey, that covers the Army in this period in the early 70s, and her also book An Army of Fire: How the Army Confronted ra uh, Racial Crisis in the Vietnam Era. So the Army was beset with racial problems, drug problems, and morale problems, and it needed a vision for the future. So it needed to be rebuilt. The Army did away with the draft, implemented the all-volunteer force, and so now it needed to be remissioned and repurposed after Vietnam. Its first commander was General Walter Kerwin, 
who served uh, as General Westmoreland's chief of staff in Vietnam. He's probably unique in being the only, one of the only Army generals to be told in the middle of a battle to prepare operational plans for implementing nuclear weapons. During the Tet Offensive, you know, as Quezon was, was under threat, he was told to draft counter plans for the ta use of tactical nuclear weapons in case that outpost was, was under attack. So that's, he had a unique place in history. And he, he and General Depew, who commanded the 1st Infantry Division in Vietnam, he, was, he became the first commander of Training and Doctrine Command. And this, you know, your army at this time was also under uncertain leadership as the Army Chief of Staff, Crichton Abrams, was on his deathbed, dying of cancer. And so he was unable to make these critical decisions and was, in fact, hesitant to authorize this, this, the, this split of Continental Army Command. So it was authorized by the vice chief, and this became Operation Steadfast, and it split trade. But it was because of the nature and how it was implemented, sort of backdoored, it was done quickly. And so this led to the Force Com and TRADOC staff officers for the next 10 years ironing out MOI, memorandums of agreement to try and iron out all the rough patches of, of who controlled what in the years to follow. And so in the years to follow, you know, the Army repurposed itself with new equipment, new doctrine, and, uh, and uh, you know, this is where you've got the M1 tank, the Apache helicopter, the Bradley fighting vehicle, and doctrine and, uh, and, and the doctrine to go with it, focused on Europe and, and re, you know, repurposing the, the, the Europe mission. And it gave the Army, in, in, by, the, by, the, by the 80s and the 90s, you got to see the results of that Army when, when it was deployed into, into Kuwait. You got to see the results of this hard work of, of these officers and generals. So uh, today, you know, now, now at its 50th anniversary, Forcecom has a little less authority than it had in 1973. We, we built up our North to take, a, take some of the operational responsibilities away, away, away from Forcecom. Forcecom has contributed a lot of slots in standing up Army Futures Command, and that's taken a little bit from TRADOC and Forcecom. And so now the Army at its 50th birthday is going through a whole uh, period very similar to 1973. So a lot of historians are looking back at the 70s as, as we plan the rearm, uh, the remodernization of the Army, which is tying in Army, you know, HRC, Human Resources Command, Army Material Command, Army Futures Command, TRADOC, and FORCECOM as we, we equip and, and prepare our army for future wars. And so force con so this puts a lot of pressure on the Department of the Army to coordinate and, and orchestrate this future as, you know, in a way, the army has been structured to operate in almost a CEO collegiality sort of, you know, stovepiped, but all tying in to synergize through the Department of the Army. So. This is an interesting, you know, attending, you know, army synchronization conferences. You get to see the sausage being made as, as this army moves step by step. And Forcecom has to tie this into their their training centers and all their all their all their training exercises 
and to, to, to be able to align the units that are going through modernization with the need to main, have the Army ready and ready to go and trained and manned and ready to fight our future wars. So we mentioned D-Day. We mentioned the uh, the 50th anniversary of Forcecom. We got still got the birthday. The birthday, the 248th birthday. And, you know, Forcecom usually has a nice event in our atrium and a, and a birthday cake. You know, usually PAO lets us know who the what the logo is going to be. But to go back, you know, 248 years to 1775, this was a point where the, the country was breaking away from Britain at the start of the Revolutionary War. You know, I would recommend uh, the book 1775, A Good Year for Revolution by Keith Phillips that breaks down this period in depth. And as a historian, I always go back to lineages and the, the, the army that gathered to, to fight in June of 1775 had a long lineage that go back that went back many years before that. You know, the, the New England colonists had to fight, you know, apocalyptic wars against the Indians. So, you know, the, these same militia units that fought at Lexington and Concord could trace their lineage back to King Philip's War. So I'd recommend uh, Flintlock and Tomahawk, an old classic by Douglas Leach that covers the, the King Philip's War. And as, as European wars broke out, uh, you know, these wars would trickle over to the colonies. So French and English colonists would, would clash. So in the late, late 17th century, you had King William's War, uh, which was in Europe, the Nine Years' War. This was a big general war across Europe with France and Dutch and the Americans. And so, uh, you know, you can read about the American colonies and, 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 and Americans were, hard, were fighting under British command across the globe in, in, down in, in, in the Caribbean, up in Canada, and out in the Western wilds. And so, you know, the American army's history goes, goes way back. And so it's, 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 it's a history to be proud of and to be justly celebrated. <laughs> All right. Well, we're running out of time. Uh, is there any, we talk about some quick pieces of history, either the birthday, D-Day, anniversary. You think there's anything we missed? We think we got most of it. Well, you know, the Army, the Army history is in, is in real time. So right now the Army has, has a large contingent in Poland, you know, that's training, training with the Polish Army, you know, helping, help, helping Ukrainian units prepare for, for, for battle. And so, you know, the Army's got real missions and, and the call could come at any time, you know, and, you know, we have the, the Army in the Pacific, is also, you know, has had we've had recent crises and wharf crises under under our previous president, you know, in North Korea, as you know, where the, the army in Korea had to be ready to go. And so, you know, the missions haven't changed. And the, 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 the mission of Forcecom to have the army ready to, to handle the changing battlefield remains the same. Okay. Well. Hope that this brief history will give our listeners a better perspective that you can't read in books, even though you've recommended some. Thanks, Jeff, for taking the time to speak with us today. I hope that uh, we can do more historical perspectives in the future, and I hope that covered a little bit of everything for everybody out there. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure.